Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, yes, my name's Joe, and it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our Hope and Holiness series, uh, having moved on now to Paul's second letter uh, to the Thessalonians. So we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, looking at a really tricky passage. I'll be honest, we have got some legwork to do initially. Uh, we need to descend into the valley uh, in order to rise up the mountainside towards the sunrise, but bear with me, it does get better before the end. Uh, you may remember from a few weeks ago that Paul picked up the subject of the end times uh, to correct some wrong thinking in this young Thessalonian church. Uh, if you remember, the Thessalonians were waiting for the return of Jesus, uh, but they began to be worried that the Christians among them who had died were going to miss out when Christ returns. Uh, so Paul set out to correct the misconception, explaining that Jesus is Lord of both the living and the dead, uh, and when he returns, there will be a union of heaven and earth, as those who have died are reunited uh, to their resurrected bodies, and those who remain alive are changed into their glorious eternal state, um, and so we will all together be forever with the Lord. Uh, he then went on to bring some teaching about the timing of the end, explaining that it will come unexpectedly, suddenly, and without warning, uh, whilst an unsuspecting world thinks it is dwelling in peace and safety. Christians, he said, are not to be asleep in this darkness, but rather awake and ready, energized by the good news uh, that the way things are is not the way they will remain, and God will bring to perfection at the end what he has begun in us now. So that was last time. Um, but now as we turn to look at today's passage, uh, we'll see that Paul's first letter didn't tidy up the matter completely for this church. And in the weeks and months that have passed since the first letter was written, uh, a deception has crept into the church's thinking. Uh, and so Paul once again has to correct some wrong thinking and unpack a little more clarity for the Thessalonians. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Paul writes, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in 
wickedness. So I think we need to pray just before we get stuck into this. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth and that it is useful for us. We ask now that by the Holy Spirit within us, you would bring understanding and clarity. Help us to learn what you would have for us this morning. And help us also to be content where there are unanswered questions or things that have not yet been fully revealed. Speak to us, we pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so despite the teaching they had when Paul originally planted the church, uh, and the end times teaching Paul sent by letter last time, there is still confusion among this church. And we're going to look first of all at a deception that has come in, and then look at Paul's correction to it. So firstly, the deception. The Thessalonians seem concerned now that the second coming and resurrection might have already occurred in some way due to this deception that's come in. We can see the controversy in the opening verses where Paul instructs them not to be alarmed by the idea that the day of the Lord has already come, even if they hear that it has come supposedly from Paul and his associates themselves, by prophecy, by word of mouth, or by a letter. So let's deal with each of these briefly. Firstly, by prophecy. So this suggests that some prophetic words have come to the church that have been saying that the day of the Lord has already come in some way, perhaps in the spiritual realm. Uh, But we've now missed it on earth. Now let's be clear, Paul is not rejecting the principle of prophetic words to the church. We've already seen from the first letter that we are not to despise prophecy. We're not to treat prophetic contributions with contempt uh, or some innate skepticism, but rather we're to test everything and hold on to what is good. And we know, don't we, that churches function best in the most healthy way when the fullness of the spiritual gifts described throughout the New Testament is practiced and developed throughout the body in the life of the church. Whether that's here on a Sunday morning, or perhaps during the service or in coffee time, um, in life groups in the week, um, or even as families, friends, and individuals. Paul says elsewhere to eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Prophetic contributions are hugely important in the life of the church. Um, And if I can just add on a personal level here, that the prophetic contributions some of you have made um, during the eldership process we've been walking through have been hugely encouraging and really sustaining. But here, Paul is providing some uh, some teaching as an apostle. Uh, So part of what we now have is the New Testament in the Bible with which to test these supposed prophetic words that had been coming to the Thessalonian church about the end times. So he mentions prophecy. Uh, Also, word of mouth, which could include teaching or sermons in the church, and definitely test those. Uh, And even a letter that claims to be from Paul. Interestingly, if we skip ahead quickly to the end of 2 Thessalonians briefly, we see right at the end of the letter, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. It was common for letters in this time to be dictated and written down by someone else. And we have mentioned in a couple of places um, of Paul's secretaries who recorded his words. But Paul adds this at the end of this letter in his own handwriting in the original manuscript. Um, To make the point here, look, this one is actually from me. This is my writing. You can trust this one. So it's a bit like we might write our signature to verify a document. So it's officially then uh, by us. So that's the deception that's come into the church. So now let's look... Um, briefly at Paul's correction. Uh, So verse 3 says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So Paul is saying here that we know the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because it will be preceded by two events which we know haven't happened yet. Firstly, the rebellion, and secondly, the man of lawlessness. So firstly, the rebellion. We know from the whole story of Scripture that there is a general sense in which humanity, on the whole, is in rebellion against God. It started in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that God told them not to. Sin and shame and guilt and death entered the world, and they were driven out of the garden, separating humanity from God. It's a big statement, but everything bad that has ever happened since has flowed out of this moment in history. And in a general sense, humanity is in rebellion against God. But Paul makes note here of a specific rebellion which is to take place linked to this man of lawlessness. And he's known elsewhere as the Antichrist. Now, you might be more familiar with that name. So what Paul goes on to describe here is that while in Adam there's general rebellion, in Antichrist there is a wholesale elevated rejection of and hostility towards God. He will be human and demonic hostility towards God in a concentrated form in a person, which is delightful. Um, so as we go through this, uh, we're going to be looking at the man, the mystery, and the Messiah. The man, the mystery, and the Messiah. Okay, so firstly then, the man. The man of lawlessness. The man doomed to destruction, the passage says. Other translations have here, son of destruction, or the son of perdition. Uh, but this is the meaning. Our popular culture quite often picks up the idea that it's light against darkness. It's good versus evil, God versus the devil or Satan, and they're locked in a battle with an uncertain outcome and who will come out on top. But the Bible really leaves no room for that view. Son of destruction might sound like a cool nickname for a boxer, perhaps, or the frontman of a metal band, <laughs> but this name is to signify his destiny. He isn't given the name Son of Destruction because he will be successful in his destructive intentions. He's given the name Son of Destruction because he himself is destined to be destroyed in the end. So even now, as he's first introduced, we see that he is limited and God is supreme. He's destined for destruction. But before then, it says he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Now, Paul here is borrowing language, as he has done before, uh, from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36 says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. So we have here the same language as Paul uses, one who will exalt himself against God and be in opposition to him. Daniel's writing around five or 600 years BC, uh, looking ahead prophetically to a future ruler. Uh, and there appears to be a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy around 400 years later uh, with the Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And there should be a, a nice picture of him. There he is. He hasn't aged particularly well. Uh, this part of history isn't recorded in the Bible, but it's part of what happened uh, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 
This Antiochus Epiphanes was a real character. See if some of this uh, sounds familiar from what Paul has said to the Thessalonians. Uh, the name Epiphanes, which he gave himself, as you do, means God revealed, as in he is the revelation of God on earth. He took the name of God and encouraged worship of himself, and he was deeply hostile to the Jewish people. So that's God's people of the day. He attacked the priesthood. He banned circumcision, which was and is an important right amongst Jewish males. He also banned the Sabbath, the Jewish feasts and festivals prescribed by the Old Testament, and even from just professing yourself as Jewish. He sent troops into the temple in Jerusalem and banned Jewish worship, which is all bad enough, right? But then he rededicated the temple in Jerusalem to the Greek god Zeus and set up a statue of Zeus inside. He instigated pagan worship in the temple using pigs as sacrificial animals, which, if you know your Old Testament law, was a big no-no uh, and was a deeply offensive act. And Daniel also describes an abomination that makes desolate, uh, which is a reference to some pagan construction on the altar in the temple. It stands for putting pagan worship in the place where the one true God meets with his people. In violation of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So this Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled Daniel's prophecy really well. And that appeared to be the end of it. But then around 150 years later, Jesus picks up the same idea from Daniel's prophecy, which we can read in the Gospels. So this, for example, from Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus says, So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When he says, let the reader understand, it's a reference to the reader of Daniel. Let the reader understand that, yes, from our perspective, Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of Old Testament antichrist but a complete fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy was yet to come. And Paul uses this language again, writing to the Thessalonians, to point forward to a final fulfillment of this prophecy in the man of lawlessness. Okay, so think of it like this. Imagine in 2013, someone could see ahead that someone was coming who was going to represent Queen Elizabeth II in a popular television program. And people wonder what it could mean. And then in 2016, we see the fulfillment in Claire Foy playing the Queen in the Netflix series The Crown for two seasons. But then in 2017, once again, someone says, someone is coming who is going to represent our Queen in a TV series. And people say, no, no, hang on, you must have missed it. It was Claire Foy. But they say, no, there comes another. <laughs> and then in 2019, we see that Olivia Colman is the fulfillment. Claire Foy was the fulfillment. But Olivia Coleman is a second fulfillment. I really hope none of these people watch this. <laughs> but then at the end of 2019, once again, someone says that someone is coming who is going to represent the Queen on TV. And people say, no, 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 we've had two fulfillments of that now already, with Claire Foy and Olivia Coleman. But they say, no, there comes another. A final fulfillment is to come. Now, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that Imelda Staunton is the Antichrist. <laughs> Although, let's be honest, she did come close as Dolores Umbridge. I'm aware I've just lost half of you. It was a Harry Potter reference for the millennials, just to be clear. 
So as I was saying, anyway, Daniel prophesies, and then Jesus and Paul point it forwards. Great. Okay, right. So Paul then goes on to say that Antichrist will set himself up in God's temple uh, or take his seat in the temple of God, as some other translations have it. And there are various theories here as to what temple is referring to in this context. Some suggest it's a reference to the church, uh, that there will be a senior leader within the church somewhere who turns out to be this man of lawlessness. Uh, Or maybe a heavenly temple where he's attempting to claim some spiritual authority in the heavenly realm. Uh, Or perhaps the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which for us now would mean a future rebuilt temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And there are various complex religious and political issues around that. Uh, Or maybe, and I think here this is the most likely, temple has a metaphorical meaning, uh, as in to take his seat in the temple of God is to claim to have dispossessed God from being God and taken his place. And another way to read the uh, the original language here is that he takes his seat as the temple of God, which would strengthen that interpretation. Various things have claimed to have replaced God over the ages, whether the Enlightenment, uh, expressed through Nietzsche's famous phrase, God is dead, uh, or evolutionary biology, or rationalism, or postmodernism, or the Higgs boson of particle physics more recently, all unsuccessfully, I would argue, another time perhaps. But if you imagine all of those things rolled into one, you'd be moving towards the claim that will be made by the man of lawlessness to have dispossessed God that's wrapped up in this phrase. And so that's the man, the man of lawlessness, which is not a particularly pleasant picture. Let's move on now, secondly, to the mystery. The mystery. Right, so Paul says from verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. There have been various attempts to come up with an explanation of what Paul is talking about here, but the reality is that we, in 21st century York, just don't know precisely what Paul communicated in person with this church. Uh, This letter was written to the first century church in Thessalonica, whom Paul had communicated with in person. So there's a background of relationship that enables him to refer to past conversations in passing. As he does here, don't you remember and you know, we only have the letter. Which means we need to trust that what God wants us to know from this is what can be understood from our limited perspective. It is interesting, though, to wonder what Paul might be referring to. Who or what is this restrainer who is holding back the Antichrist until his time? Some think Paul was referring to the Roman emperor, uh, or for us now, some other civil or state leader that it's the relatively stable governance of society in general that is holding back evil. Or maybe it's the Holy Spirit restraining evil until God's timing allows it. Or perhaps even the archangel Michael. Uh, It says in Daniel again and in Revelation in the New Testament that Michael restrains spiritual forces of evil. Personally, I think the great early church theologian Augustine of Hippo had the right idea. Uh, When writing about this passage, he said... I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. (laughs) So we're going to go with that. (laughs) Maybe the generation that sees these things take place will be able to say, oh, we see now what the restrainer was. Or maybe it will remain unknown to all except Paul and the Thessalonians. And that's okay, or would be given more to go on. 
The point is that the restrainer functions to ensure that the Antichrist is revealed in his time and not before. In other words, God is in control of the timeline here. Until then, lawlessness is an impersonal mystery, what the NIV here calls a secret power. And there has always been a general hostility towards Jesus and the church. It's always been the case for God's people through the ages and is nothing new or extraordinary to us or for any future generation of the church. In 1 John chapter 2, so it's a New Testament letter that was written a few decades after Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. The Apostle John describes this in verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. And again in chapter 4, verse 3, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. So this is John's way of articulating the impersonal and personal natures of the spirit of Antichrist. And this was written during an era of intense persecution for Christians. John is likely writing this during the reign of the Emperor Domitian, uh, who was hugely hostile towards Christians. And that's just a couple of decades after Nero, who was a particularly special kind of evil, um, especially against Christians in ways I won't go into detail here. But suffice it to say, it makes sense to Paul and John and the other writers of the New Testament to be able to testify of the spirit of Antichrist at work and point forward to a time when the general will become specific and the impersonal become personal, or the multipersonal will become individual just before the end. So we've looked at the man, we've looked at the mystery, super heavy stuff. So now let's turn at last, like a breath of fresh air, to consider the Messiah. Verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So now lawlessness has ceased to be a secret power and an unrestrained lawless personality is revealed. But he will be destroyed. Notice Paul here moves straight from revelation to destruction. This is not a big deal for Jesus. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow. And he uses biblical language, pictures and prophecy in the Old Testament of God in his judgment and attributes them here to the returning, conquering Jesus, the Messiah. Breath of his mouth comes through in a few places in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of God's judgment by the breath of his lips. Job chapter 4 speaks of a blast of God's anger being the breath of God. And in Revelation, we see a New Testament picture of Jesus from whose mouth comes a sharp sword to judge justly. So we have the coming of Christ and the coming of Antichrist. It's the same word, parousia, in the Greek, in the original language. The coming of Christ will be a personal and bodily manifestation of the God who is now unseen to intervene in world history. And as we saw from the passage last week, he will receive glory and praise from his people. The coming of Antichrist, on the other hand, will be by the power of Satan, with false signs and wonders, and wicked deception to leave people to believe the Antichrist's claims to be God. And then just tucked in at the end of the passage, we have those who are perishing, perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, 
God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, we need to be really careful here. <laughs> I can feel the eggshells under my feet. We need to be really careful that we don't read into this, God sent them a delusion so they refuse to love the truth and be saved. That's not what it says. Firstly, we've already seen the division between those who love the truth about Jesus and the salvation he offers and those who don't. That's already a reality when this delusion comes, which effectively is just sealing the choice that people have already made at this, a predetermined fixed point in time. So this doesn't mean that we stop praying for our friends and loved ones to believe the truth. This doesn't mean anyone who has ever said no is written off. This doesn't mean we should be any less fervent in mission and evangelism. God's heart remains for the lost. And in the age of the church, mercy triumphs over judgment. Secondly, God is not evil or wicked. It's not who he is or what he does. But evil is a reality in this world, and so God makes it serve his justice. Here in the text, we see that evil is restrained, then evil is revealed, and then evil is destroyed, and God is overseeing the whole process, ensuring it all happens in its time according to his will. This is massively challenging, and I can't do justice to this conversation in the little time I have this morning. But New Testament scholar uh, Beverly Roberts Gaventa says this. She says, Texts such as 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 12, which is our passage today, however they make us squirm, call us away from a white bread Christianity in which neither God nor the gospel has much depth of substance to a recognition of the presence of evil in the world. They do not answer our questions about why evil exists, and they do not offer a talisman that protects us from its power or its consequences. Nevertheless, they do promise that the day will come when evil will be conquered, conquered by the mere breath of the Lord Jesus. So to conclude, there have been some hard, heavy things this morning, um, but I want to keep this quite simple to end. Now is the time to come to Christ. We've seen that Antichrist is coming, and even now the spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world. Those who believe the lie are deceived and condemned. But those who believe the truth are saved and are made holy and are beloved. Now is the time to come to Christ. On the one hand, there is Antichrist, and on the other, there is Christ, the son of destruction and the son of God, the man of lawlessness and the man of righteousness and justice, the one who exalts himself and the one who humbled himself, the one who takes his seat to be served, and the one who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I know who I'd rather follow. Now is the time to come to Christ. So let's just pray. And can we have the band back up as well, please? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge the reality of evil in our world. We don't claim to understand it fully. And we know there are times when we ourselves contribute towards it. But we thank you, Jesus, that you are the conquering Messiah. Yours is the victory.
and you will receive glory and praise forevermore. And we love you, Lord. Amen.